Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Kurt Wagner, the mutant superhero codenamed Nightcrawler, and we'll be tackling the 12-issue series titled Nightcrawler that was published beginning in 2004. Joining us for the discussion is first-time guest Anna Papard. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Anna, uh, you are somewhat of an expert in Nightcrawler, is that correct? (laughs) I seem to be becoming that. Um, I was a big fan of the character when I first got into X-Men and when I was relatively new to weekly comics about a decade ago. And uh, we sort of broke up when he died um, for a while. <laughs> but then I got super back into X-Men comics this spring just in time to have that as a distraction um, during the pandemic and wrote something for a website called Vault of Culture about my love of Nightcrawler, and things just kind of took off from there. And now I'm calling myself Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager and selling BAMF t-shirts and just really gone down the rabbit hole. Oh, excellent. So you are the right person to have on for this episode. <laughs> um, as I said, we're discussing Nightcrawler's first solo ongoing series, which was written by Roberto aguirre Sacasa with art by Derek Robertson. The series ran for 12 issues between 2004 and 2005, and it tells the story of Nightcrawler becoming a specialist in paranormal issues for the X-Men before discovering he himself has been unknowingly involved in some major paranormal issues. Um, I Do you remember when you first kind of, uh, you said you first started reading uh, the comics about, what I can't remember already, I've forgotten, was it 10 years ago you said? Yeah, I was trying to think and I was like, yeah, I think X-Men I probably read about 10 years ago. I was a slowcomer to X-Men, surprisingly. Like, I, I read superhero comics a little bit growing up, but got sort of really into them in my early 20s when, you know, digital comics kind of became a thing because access was always an issue for me. Um, and then I was a latecomer to X-Men. I mean, I liked the movies and stuff, like, growing up, but I just took me a while to get around to X-Men and yeah Kurt just became my favorite character very quickly and I was very excited to discover this series I probably read it in 2010 or 2011 um, so a little bit after it would have been published originally but you know to have this series about your favorite character that kind of works through their backstory in some good and bad ways but I mean just to have your character at the center of the X-Men universe was like super exciting and this is a series I've come back to many times over the years. Yeah it's really interesting for me with a franchise like the X-Men when they try and take a character who we've only ever read in a group dynamic and spin them off and make them like the sole protagonist of the series and there's definitely uh, a mixed history in terms of the success of that effort Wolverine being clearly the most successful and really very few others being able to carry a series um, as a solo character after they you know became known to the readers in, in that group setting um, but Marvel certainly keeps trying uh, and has tried for years with uh, <laughs> many of the different characters often with like the deliberate miniseries where it's like we're testing the waters with with the miniseries mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I call out a few examples of that um, as well uh, X-Men was the first comic book I ever read, uh, and it was in, I think, 1991 was the first issue that I ever read of X-Men, and Nightcrawler wasn't in it, but then pretty quickly I started picking up more X-Men issues, and I discovered Nightcrawler, and he is just a fun character. Like, there's something that I think really grabs a reader about Nightcrawler. Um, it's a wonderful blend of his physical appearance, which, for any readers who don't know Night or listeners who don't know Nightcrawler, he's... Um, got a, uh, a blue blue skin or fur, depending on what the writer says, but it's usually just presented as skin. Um, and yellow eyes, and he has kind of a demonic appearance, um, but he has all these things that you wouldn't expect with that, where he's very playful uh, and fun-loving, but also deeply religious, um, and he has that appearance. And so just that, you know, that, that blend of kind of unexpected elements comes together to create a character that... Uh, there's a reason that he's resonated for for so long, you know, since since he first appeared in '75. Uh, you know, he's he's been a staple uh, character in Marvel comics. Well, he's a classic kind of fan favorite character, especially within the context of sort of the X-Men universe where he's, you know, he's this demonic guy who's just the goodest guy ever. (laughs) 
That's yeah. how I would describe him. <laughs> and I will specify just because, you know, as Kurt Wagner's PR manager, um, he does have canonically fur that canonically um, feels like velvet. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just a Marvel Universe fact that um, is important to get right. <laughs> yes. Th- though I, I, I think you could also <laughs> find references where it's referred to as skin. <laughs> it's just comes and goes. There's not some other things like, uh, well, we'll get to it in the trivia. Like he, he has one power that is there briefly for a while and then yes. very rarely mentioned ever again. Uh, so um, some trivia about Nightcrawler. He was a character created by Dave Cockrum who had pitched the character to DC Comics, but DC was not interested in the character at that time. And when uh, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum relaunched the X-Men in 1975, Nightcrawler was introduced as part of a new international team of mutants. So in the history of X-Men Comics, when the, when the series first launches uh, in the 60s, it's pretty much a straight superhero comic. It doesn't have all the weight of um, the social allegory that a lot of people kind of assume is core to the X-Men. That really comes about in this comic. Uh, what, what becomes the Claremont run in the 70s and into the 80s. In the in the early 60s, it's um, you could pick up an issue of the X-Men and an issue of the Avengers and have a lot of the same kind of dialogue and a lot of the same kind of themes happening um, within those. And um, the series ran for a while uh, successfully, and th- but then it kind of became a lower selling. And eventually, uh, they didn't cancel the title, but they just went into reprints. So there's this reprint era of X-Men where there were no new X-Men stories being told. And in 1975, uh, they kind of relaunched the franchise and they introduced a brand new uh, international team. And Nightcrawler is one of those new mutants. And a lot of the most famous iconic X-Men come from this relaunch. So that's where we get Storm and uh Colossus and where Wolverine gets introduced into the team. He'd been introduced into Marvel Comics previously, but that's where he comes into the team. And so um, a lot of uh, what becomes uh, the most famous versions of the characters that you see in the cartoon adaptations for kids and then in the films are coming out of this period. Uh, Much of the character's personality was developed during Chris Claremont's long run writing the X-Men title. The character has subsequently been written and drawn by dozens, if not hundreds of creators. So there's a lot of, with any long running comic book character there's it's hard to say who most given the voice but claremont writing the character for so long when he was first introduced really is a is a key one but dozens and dozens of creators have worked on nightcrawler um a notable touchstone is the comic series excalibur um which was created by chris claremont and alan davis in which nightcrawler is also a central character and sometimes leader of the uk-based superhero team and that series ran for a decade from 88 to 98 um and it it's an interesting series because it almost feels a little off to the side and ancillary to the X-Men titles. I don't think it was treated as a core X-Men title, but it definitely has a deep fan base. Is that right? In your, your take on that, Anna? Yes. <laughs> I would describe Excalibur as a, as a cult series for sure. And it's for most Nightcrawler fans, kind of the high point of Nightcrawler. Um, he was just a very, very central character in that book and the leader of the team for some time. But it's also a series that in a lot of ways kind of spun off from his personality. Um, so there's an issue of Uncanny X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 204, What Happened to Nightcrawler, um, which is a little bit like reads a little bit like a trial run for Excalibur. That would be sort of like um, seven issues, I think, before he's gravely wounded. And then that results in him and Kitty Pride um, forming Excalibur. So, I mean, in terms of Nightcrawler's personality being this kind of swashbuckler, kind of jokester, adventurous character um, with kind of a mix of kind of trauma and humor. Um, Excalibur really fills the bill there. And that's partly why it is such an iconic sort of Nightcrawler focus series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I always love those media properties that maybe don't reach as broad. I mean, I mean, with all comic books, we're talking about a niche fandom right the people who are actually reading the comics yeah. is not as broad as the people who are going to be aware of these characters through film and television um just because of the nature of that but then within the comic book industry there are still those titles that kind of have the niche side fandom that that runs really deep but it's just not as broad so there were the core x-men titles were the best-selling titles in all of comics when mm-hmm. when excalibur was going um and excalibur never had that same readership but it had really devoted fans um who and i've been rereading a lot of that claremont run uh, on excalibur and there's just kind of a maybe because it's a little more off to the side like it feels a, a little more freedom to just be crazy sometimes <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah it's it's a series that um i've heard it proposed too that some of the um mm, risque for its day sexual content of Excalibur um, owes a little bit to the UK publishing context as well. It flew under the writer on a variety of different ways. Yeah, and I, and I just, it felt a little less, maybe editorially controlled <laughs> than some of the other yeah. um, uh, X-Men titles at the time. 
and there's just like the villains and and they they just go into some crazy directions with with that series um <laughs> so nightcrawler we kind of gave a little description of this but his mutant power manifested in a unique physical appearance so blue fur yellow eyes fangs <laughs> pointed ears prehensile tail three large fingers and toes as well as the ability to teleport and cling to walls and sometimes he disappears into shadows as in like he's literally not there if he's in shadow but that power is very rarely brought up um it makes no sense when, because, they, when they first yeah. introduce it it is like a big deal and then it's like eh. <laughs> okay uh, it's also hilarious because it's like in this issue where they're in like this castle and he's interacting with these like yeah. gnomes and like, isn't it like literally leprechauns <laughs> like irish leprechauns are, are going yes out. and and like he just like notices that he disappears in shadows for like the first time in his life and he'd never noticed this previously. Yeah. And he wasn't at all. This isn't like the young X-Men who are like discovering their powers. Our sense is like he's he's had no, this physical appearance yeah. his entire life. He's he mm-hmm. would have always had these powers, and it's just like, whoa, my body's gone in the shadows. <laughs> and the way he's drawn, it's like literally like you see uh, like a hard disappearance of any physical form as a shadow is cast on him. He has a rough time in early X-Men. I mean, it's incomprehensible to me as someone who likes him so much, but they couldn't sort of find a place for him. And that is, again, sort of part of why he had to find that kind of place outside of the X-Men kind of to grow as a character. But they sort of he was like the jack of all trades in early X-Men. He's like he's like the medic and he's like the pilot. And they're always trying to come up with things for him to do and modify his powers to make him kind of more useful. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And those early days of the X-Men, because the X-Men was such a... Well, like nothing franchise for Marvel, uh, you know, it had been in re- reprints for so years. Uh, we say Excalibur, he really had Claremont had a lot of control. Like he, there was a lot of spaghetti being thrown against the wall in those early X Men mm-hmm. um, issues, mm-hmm. um, where it's kind of like, sure, just go ahead because no one cares about the X Men, which is weird to say for what became the biggest franchise in comics. And I mean, they're they're remarkably uneven. But how many X Men films have they made at this point? Is it over a dozen plus? I can't remember. <laughs> Six, six, seven. It's only oh, if, you what, count the Wolver- if you count the Wolverine ones. I think you're. Oh, if we're counting the Wolverine ones, yeah, yeah, yeah about a dozen. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's that's a major franchise. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, going back to the '70s, it was even though the, the franchise had been around for a decade, there it, there wasn't a whole lot of um, you know care about what the direction was or even what characters were being introduced. Um, so, uh, Nightcrawler's appearance is uh, described as demonic very frequently. And also when he, uh, they call it bamfing when he teleports, um, it leaves a smell of, um, brimstone is what it's always described as. And so there's a lot of association with kind of devil imagery, but Nightcrawler is Catholic. His faith, faith is often featured in the stories as a very like deep and real, uh, uh, faith. Uh, but specific dimensions of that have definitely fluctuated depending on who is writing. And there are some writers who I thought handled this remarkably poorly. Um, the idea of, yes, yes. Uh, you know, a, a character with faith. Some, some writers seem to really struggle with that. Uh, Claremont said that they initially considered writing him as angsty and sullen because of how he's been treated due to his physical appearance, but then decided that we had seen that movie before. So they made him fun, loving swashbuckling, uh, fun, loving and swashbuckling character, which is not to say that Claremont hates angst ridden characters. Um, that's a well he's very willing to, to dip into, um, but he just didn't want it to be Nightcrawler. And I think the result is a really fun dichotomy uh, that we get. Yeah, definitely sort of one of my favorite things about the character. And this isn't always how he's depicted, but sort of the core idea that, you know, you have so many tortured, monstrous superheroes in the Marvel Comics universe, especially. But Nightcrawler is kind of this guy who's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. The torment of the mutant superhero, right? But I mean, he's this guy who's always looked like this. He's not Ben Grimm, who transformed as an adult into this form. He's always been this guy. And he's sort of like, so Nightcrawler's sort of like, I'm awesome. I love being me. I just want everybody else to get on my level right and that's kind of what he ends up struggling with like he doesn't want to be different he wants to be this guy because who he is is awesome but he just like everybody else can't sort of get on the same page um what we're talking about today is nightcrawler's first what was billed as an ongoing series it ended up only being 12 issues but that's a reasonable run at that era and in the current era of comics 12 issues is great um previously he did have a four issue miniseries in 1985 when he went hopping along different dimensions and also a four issue miniseries in 2002 um that focused on his decision to become a priest in the catholic church and in 2013 or 2014 i'm sorry there was another nightcrawler ongoing series that that one written by chris claremont which also ran for 12 issues before being canceled 
And we're discussing the series that was written by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, who has had a prominent career in comics and television. Right now, he's the chief creative officer for Archie Comics and the showrunner for Riverdale and uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which I think was recently canceled. So I guess was the showrunner for The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Um, And as the chief creative officer for Archie Comics, I think it's worth noting, like, he definitely pushed uh, the exploration of the occult and uh, with things like um, the afterlife of Archie, which turned all the characters into zombies and with the chilling adventures of Brina really was pushing that. So when we see Nightcrawler uh, become more engaged in the paranormal in this, it seems to be that's something that he, he likes to focus on as a theme in his works. Um, and the artist for this series, Derek Robertson, Robertson, has had a long career in comics and is the co-creator of several series, including Transmetropolitan, The Boys, and Happy, and the latter two have been turned into TV shows. Um, so he's, I'm sure, doing fine with whatever he gets <laughs> from those. <laughs> those ones were creator-owned. And that's when, whatever, where comic creators could actually make money is when something that they have done as a creator-owned project gets optioned for film or television. <laughs> um before we move on to the discussion of this series, we want to thank those of you who have downloaded this episode and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we aren't covering as special episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, Anna, before I uh, jump into the summary of this uh, tw- this twelve issue series. Um, how would you describe the art and tone of the series? Just because I'm going to run through the plot, uh, but but could you give us a fl- uh, you know our listeners a flavor of kind of the art style? Yeah, I mean it's. Mm. It's sort of a naturalistic style. I mean, as far as comic book art goes, I mean I find it a bit of a interesting and strange style for this character. To be honest, who's sort of a character that's been kind of mm, associated with comedy to a certain extent but also sort of a character who has a very inhuman type appearance although um yeah I mean it's interesting to sort of see him rendered in this kind of more realist art style and that sort of works I think with some of the groundedness of this series this is a series that does try to kind of like put the character in sort of a version of the real world you know like going and investigating things in New York City even though there's all of this supernatural stuff going on as well but um but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else I would say kind of about it beyond that. I mean, I've got sort of some complaints about sort of the consistency of the character modeling in in Robertson's art style. But for the most part, yeah, I think it works for I, the tone little, of this series. When I was rereading it, I was a little, I, I remember thinking, because I hadn't reread it in uh, probably since it was published. Like I, I bought the issues when they were coming out because I really like Nightcrawler. Um, I don't think I'd gone back and reread it and rereading it for this episode. I thought oh, this art's kind of uneven. Who's the artist again? And then I checked him like, Oh, he's a big name. Like I was a little surprised. Um, strangely more when he was drawing uh, human characters, I thought his facial work was a little uneven um, at times, yes. um, but I thought he, he nailed Nightcrawler pretty well um, in general. And it was also interesting to me, like he, uh, when, when Nightcrawler was going casual, it, uh, there were times where it felt a little like 90s grunge aesthetic for Nightcrawler, <laughs> like wearing <laughs> yeah. open button down shirts and stuff like that, that um, I hadn't seen the character. It was 2004. So, I mean, I was trying to be like, when you go back to stuff from 2004, you're like, you think it was the 2000s, but people were still dressing like it was the 90s. So I gave him a pass on mm-hmm. that. Well, there's also... Because Nightcrawler's fashion does matter to me a great deal, but... Mm-hmm. um. <laughs> There is the very real reality that often uh, comic book artists end up drawing casual clothes as whatever it was when they entered the industry. That is the permanent casual yeah. clothes as they move forward. Like yeah. it can be 15 years later and they don't update the style <laughs> that they're they're drawing in. <laughs> I will say when I was rereading it, though, I, I think the first few issues in particular, he does kind of a good job with some of sort of the visual kind of um, metaphors of Nightcrawler. He does some good things where, you know, he'll be sort of in the foreground and then in the next panel, sort of, he'll just do him sort of in silhouette with just his eyes, where he's sort of emphasizing sort of the character's demonic features more and kind of moving back and forth from that sort of the accessible humanity of the character to aspects of his demonic appearance and kind of emphasizing that dichotomy. He does some good work with that in the opening issues i would say especially and kind of loses track of that as the series goes along a little bit you know suggesting he was maybe a little bit more rushed as the series went along yeah but there were some gestures like that that were quite effective (laughs) yeah yeah exactly um but and and also i think there's a little more dynamism in terms of like 
camera angles as we're you know if that's the right mm-hmm. term for it like the angle at which we're watching mm-hmm. Nightcrawler do his stuff and and you know when it's on the sides of buildings and stuff like there that it feels like if it was a film the camera would be like swooping around him as we move from one panel to the next i remember um, yeah i think the first couple of issues are pretty strong art wise but mm-hmm. yeah there is sort of a drop off by the end yeah all right well here is the plot summary and i'm going to try and just do a few sentences per issue so this doesn't take too long listeners so episode or issue number one storm asks nightcrawler to investigate a mystery involving the deaths of many children inside of a locked room in a children's psychiatric ward at a hospital because nightcrawler is a teleporter he may be able to lend insight into how 13 of 14 children in the room were massacred the surviving boy seth fidgets with knotted string but never speaks nightcrawler suspects the security guard wants to say something but dr childs who is in charge of the ward intimidates him into silence a nurse named christine palmer who will become a love interest for kurt is more helpful nightcrawler follows the guard and sees him confront dr childs and the doctor seems to summon demonic powers and make the guard burst into flames issue number two kurt tries to save the guard by teleporting him into a lake but the guard keeps burning even underwater kurt goes to visit his foster sister and ex-girlfriend the sorceress amanda sefton who is at that point the ruler of limbo there's been a lot of rulers of limbo in marvel comics um she she suggests that the knotted string may be binding seth so he doesn't speak kurt goes back to the hospital and then ties the string and seth does start talking but dr Charles arrives with seth's legal guardian who asks kurt to leave in a brief flash kurt seems uh, thinks he sees the forum uh, of the legal guardian become a demon but he's not sure nurse palmer takes kurt down to the morgue where she shows him all the dead children's bodies have turned to ash that moment where um he he thinks like the, there's a flash and he thinks that he sees a demon in the corner of his eye. That's one of those moments that I think works more cinematically or in television than in comic books. Cause we just see a panel of a demon. <laughs> like it's not yeah. like a random flash that you, you know, the, the time is processed so differently between comic books and film that in film you can do that quick flash and it's only on screen, you know, for a handful of frames. And it's really like, well, what, what, what was that? But in comic books it's like, well, that's a demon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in issue number three, Kurt se- sneaks back in to see Seth, who is making 14 clay vessels, one for each of his friends and one for himself. Nurse Palmer finds C- Nightcrawler and tells him that Seth's aunt is attacking Dr. Childs. Childs tells Kurt to transport the woman to a church, which he does, and she can be. Uh, and at the church, she can now be sub- subdued. Kurt takes the woman to see Amanda Sefton, uh, who determines that she is a homeless woman who is hosting 13 demons. These demons entered the world through the bodies of Seth's 13 friends. They surmise that there must be a 14th demon still housed inside of Seth. Uh, Issue number four, Dr. Childs has taken Seth so that he can force the the demon out of him. Childs and other wealthy people have summoned 14 demons, but they need all 14 for their plans to work, not just 13. Nightcrawler uses his image inducer to sneak into the ceremony. Now, the image inducer is a thing where he can look like a normal human, and which is very problematic (laughs) in terms of what this means for the metaphor of mutant acceptance and just being themselves and then having these image inducers that let them uh, look like normal humans. Uh, But it's necessary sometimes as a plot device here. Uh, But also like usually only kurt has one and like there's so many other people that don't seem to get one <laughs> yes oh uh, and ones who are like way more angsty and would use it more frequently than mm-hmm. kurt does because kurt's kind of fine with his physical appearance and there are other mutants who really loathe uh you know the physicality that their mutation has given them um <laughs> So uh, he's now in the ceremony uh, and uh, the demon begins to try to break out of Seth's body and Kurt has brought Kitty Pride along who is uh, the member of the X-Men known as Shadowcat who can phase things to become intangible. So as the demon starts to rip out of Seth's body, she grabs Seth's body and makes it intangible and the demon is freed without killing Seth. This demon is not trapped in the same mystical circle as the other 13 and goes on a bit of a rampage and kills Childs. Amanda Sefton and Christine Palmer teleport uh, in with the 14 clay vessels that Seth was making and they trapped the demons inside of them. Issue number five. Uh, we're going to go into a new story now. So Kurt and Christine Palmer are hanging out more, but just as friends, which Kurt makes very clear. <laughs> Meanwhile, there is a haunted subway line, and the mayor asks Kurt to go look into that ghost situation. He's becoming known as the X-Men's paranormal investigator. He's told that the ghosts often linger, uh, that, that ghosts in general often linger because of unfinished business. So he goes to see if he can find out what these ghosts actually want. Issue number six, Kurt has a fight with one of the ghosts, uh, with the ghosts of old subway workers while he is asking them what they want. Eventually, one leads him to a hole in a tunnel wall where Kurt finds bone fragments. He takes these to Amanda Sefton, who does some necromancy. It's always good to have a girlfriend who can do some necromancy. Uh, where she's she... so use, she is incredibly useful in this series. Yes, uh, she is like like Kurt would not get a whole lot done <laughs> without Amanda mm-hmm. Sefton. Um, 
She has flashes of memories of a worker warning a foreman that things weren't safe where they were working. Kurt then does some research into in, in old newspapers, which it almost feels like the internet isn't yet a thing in the Marvel <laughs> Universe, the way he goes to do this research. And he finds a report of 18 men killed in an accident while building a subway line. Kurt tells the mayor, mayor, who sets up a commission, to find the descendants of the men who were killed so that some reparations can be made. As the mayor makes this announcement, the ghosts dissolve. Uh, issue number seven. Kurt has been attacked by a villain named Vermin. His toxins make Kurt have hallucinations that mix memories with nightmares surrounding Kurt's time performing in a German circus, times he was attacked by angry mobs because of his appearance, and his time with the X-Men. So we're getting, like, flashes of Kurt's uh, established, like, history in the Marvel Universe. In his dream, Kurt finds a treasure chest containing some secret from his past, but before he can open it, the X-Men uh, heal his body, and Emma Frost telepathically pulls Kurt out of the hallucination. Uh, Kurt, Wolverine, and Christine Palmer head to Germany to try and find out what the secret was. Issue number eight, we delve into Kurt's past in Germany, including time with his adopted family and their travels with the circus. In their travels through Germany, Wolverine, Christine Palmer, and Kurt come across the circus in which Kurt performed, but it is now in flames. Issue number nine. Concerned about another circus that he was once attached to, Nightcrawler and friends travel to Florida to ensure that whatever happened to the German circus doesn't happen to the Florida circus. Also, Amanda Sefton has been attacked by a demon named Nightmare. He is asking her for the soul sword, but when Amanda and Kurt's adopted mother, uh, Margali, is that how you pronounce that? I've never known. It's one of those names I've read in comics, but I've never actually said out loud till probably this moment. Yeah, that's how I pronounce it in my mind, so let's go with that. Okay. Are you in the same boat? Like, we read all these names, but don't always have conversations out loud about Mm -hmm. them. Uh, so, uh, Kurt's adopted mother, Margali, shows up and defeats Nightmare, uh, and Nightmare can't even remember that he was seeking the Soul Sword. Like, he's kind of confused about what he was even doing there. Issue number 10. Kurt and friends arrive at the Florida Circus, where we learn that Kurt was once imprisoned in the freak show. The bigoted owner, uh, Hardeen, warns Kurt uh, that something evil is coming. A bunch of monsters attack, and Kurt, Wolverine, and Christine fend them off. Margali arrives, and she pulls the much-sought Soul Sword out of Kurt's body, as in, like, she reaches into Kurt's body like think uh like like kitty pride phasing or uh indiana jones like a hand reaching into a body and she pulls out the soul sword doesn't hurt kurt when she does this when this happens a swarm of bugs fly out of hardin's mouth and enter into wolverine this the swarm of bugs is the demon hive and now they possess wolverine who stabs christine Issue number 11, Christine helps save Christine. Kurt fights Wolverine. Hive leaves Wolverine's body. Hive warns Kurt that this is not over. It's kind of a a quick issue here. Issue number 12. Uh, Kurt convalesces after this crazy adventure. The X-Men throw him a surprise birthday uh, party. Um, Fun fact, fans celebrate Kurt's birthday party on November 11th in honor of the birthday of his creator, Dave Cockrum. So, uh, Anna, you entered entered that little bit of trivia. I didn't know that Mm -hmm. (laughs) about this. Yeah, yeah. It was always a thing when I was sort of, I'm not doing as much of this stuff anymore, but I used to be on like a Nightcrawler fan forum and stuff. So that was always a day when we do a lot of stuff because that was his birthday. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, During the party, everyone freezes, but Kurt, uh, and he finds a demon named Mephisto, wants to have a chat with him. He warns Kurt that a war of demons is coming and he says if kurt will join his side he can bring back kurt's dead adopted brother uh kurt instead punches mephisto who says it's war then and he leaves and at kurt's party christine says she'll be moving back to tucson but before she goes she and kurt finally kiss the end of these 12 issues so that was a nice rapid fire summary i was like you covered a lot of ground there oh in doing this podcast we've we've learned what needs to be trimmed when you're, when you're doing a summary. With 12 issues, it can be pushing it, but you you really like, okay, how can I condense this issue into just a few sentences? And I will, with superhero stories, often it's just like they fight covers, you know, six issues of, mm-hmm. uh, of a comic. Uh, and you're, you're really like narratively covering what happens uh, by not going the, the beat by beat of the, you know, the, the fun art that the artists really like to do with, with fight scenes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. One thing, I, like I kind of hinted at this before, and I want us to delve into it a little bit because uh, I think it's an interesting aspect for Kurt uh, as a character that when you take a team-oriented character like Nightcrawler and give them a solo series, you have to kind of find a purpose and a mission. Like what is going to be driving this character? Because when they're part of the team, you know, you can go two, three issues where they're only there in the background, then maybe give them a, a storyline that focuses on them more. You know, there's lots that you can do. And it's more about the interplay and the di- group dynamic is what's going to drive a team-oriented story. But when you have a solo series, you need to have a protagonist that is well-established, which I think we have with Nightcrawler, but they have to have a purpose. And that's something that Nightcrawler didn't really, you know, necessarily have. Uh, and so 
for the series, they give him like this kind of paranormal detective, particularly for the first six issues. The, the next six, six issues enters into still paranormal range, but it's less of the detective kind of story um, mm-hmm. side of it. And I really like that flavor that they give to Nightcrawler. I, I was a little sad that I almost got lost within you know the second half of the series and hasn't really been delved into again because I think that there's you know a, a role that could still be filled in the Marvel universe for that type of character. Um, how successful do you think this was in giving Nightcrawler? you know something that makes him stand apart as a as a protagonist of a solo story instead of a you know part of the the group well yeah i mean i'll say that this series came at sort of an interesting point in terms of the x-men franchise and in terms of nightcrawler's character in particular so this was this series took place within the context of chris claremont's return um to the x-men um as the regular writer of uncanny x-men and nightcrawler was on that team as well as was storm who features heavily in this series so this series tied in with that so it was a reset of one of the many resets of the x-men franchise that was going on at the time and a bit of a reset for nightcrawler as well in as much as for the several years previously his main sort of story arc had been this quest to become a priest which was very confusing and not well done for a variety of reasons um uh and was eventually kind of retconned as being brainwashing in some sense but I not like, really explained as um, problematic as the whole like quest to become a priest was uh the retconning was much worse <laughs> Yes, like at least. Yeah, I mean, my thing about retconning is like, that's fine. And that's something that you inevitably have to do in shared continuity universe, but at least do something that makes sense. And that is interesting. And that we learn something about the character. It was kind of just like, he might have been brainwashed. Let's just not talk about it again. (laughs) It just sort of has been this kind of unresolved thing in his entire backstory. So in some senses, this is a reset of the character. And I think for me, I feel... Um, this series kind of trying to strike a balance between that stronger sort of religious focus of the character that had been present in previous years. And I'll say too, like we mentioned Excalibur quite a bit off the top, that had not been a significant element of the character like between 1988 and 1998 um, in his appearances in Excalibur, um, the religious angle of the character was not heavily present there, I would say almost at all. So when he comes back into the X-Men after the end of Excalibur, it gets um, emphasized more strongly and in conversation with the um, strong strongly religiously focused um, depiction of the character in the X-Men 2 movie as well. So this was all kind of part and parcel of kind of, you know, resetting the character in a certain way. So as I was saying, I think in this series, you get kind of a balance between sort of resurrecting some of those elements of the character that had fallen by the wayside, that the character is a very romantic character, um, for one thing. Um, He certainly has many (laughs) potential girlfriends in this series. He's always been a character that has a strong female fan base, and this is a very female gazy series in a lot of ways. We get quite a few shower scenes in this series, which I appreciate as one of those fans. Um, but yeah, so, so I see it sort of trying to strike that balance between sort of resetting the character to some of the things that made him a fan favorite character, but also keeping an element of kind of like, I almost want to say moroseness because he'd become quite morose kind of in the years leading up to this, which is very different than how he'd been kind of in a lot of previous portrayals, mm-hmm. although he'd always had kind of an element of that. But yeah, so I see it trying to strike that balance and him being a paranormal investigator, the thing I do like about that as a gimmick is that he is such a like generally sort of like cheerful, non-morose character. And then to have him kind of go into this, yeah, paranormal investigator role where he doesn't even really believe in magic for some reason, despite the fact that he's like raised by witches. Like, that's very funny, although I don't think it's really worked out on a character level as well as it might be. I mean, he's having some of these conversations with Amanda where he's like, you're saying like that war in heaven with the demons really happened? I was like, okay, A, you've been to hell before, and B, (laughs) you were studying to be a priest, so presumably you did believe that. You're very religious. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of sort of character beats like that that sort of read as a bit off to me, but... But yeah, I was intrigued by that angle as a way to kind of bring the character, both kind of bring him into the character, bring the character into the world in a more grounded way by having him kind of in this detective role, but also maintain those aspects of the, I mean, Nightcrawler generally, like his sort of previous sort of solo series had been this dimension hopping, completely zany, completely bonkers thing. And Excalibur kind of continues that. So this was a very different kind of direction, but I think... 
effective as an idea for how you might reset the character while keeping elements of of the character from times past that was a very long-winded answer and i apologize oh no it's great and i think it would have given a hook for the series to continue if it had gone past 12 issues like that's a way Mm -hmm. to consistently have new adventures you know arrive at his door i mean that's that's why there's so many genres of you know the, the crime solving for television or book series or the whether it's you know an official uh crime stopper or like the private eye you know every new story just has to be something else has happened and uh you know that's that certainly would have worked uh to, to keep the character going um it plays into his appearance with the the demonic side and um it would have uh you know allowed reasons for him to like that's the other thing with like a lot of these team dynamic um characters breaking out on solo adventures often it's like well where's the team <laughs> like what is going on yeah um you yeah know, the, i mean like why do we have this character kind of breaking off th- that would have been allowed you know saying well he's the ex- expert in the paranormal which the x-men certainly could have had other characters fulfill that role <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean again though i kind of come back to that being a potentially really funny thing mm-hmm. like one of the things i really love about the character abe sapien and hellboy comics is that he's this fish guy and that's never relevant he's a guy who just shoots stuff and his fish skills are like never ever ever relevant and that's really really funny and i felt a little bit of that here where you know nightcrawler's this guy who looks like a demon but he doesn't really like engage with the paranormal or care about it or like research it apparently at all and go to his girlfriend all the time to solve the problem yeah he He doesn't actually have the skill set to solve it he needs to go get christine palmer for health issues and he needs to go get uh you know amanda sefton for the supernatural stuff stuff uh kitty pride needs to actually use her powers to uh, free the demon you know it's always well wolverine's got to come come along because i do like the wolverine kurt dynamic that's always been a fun one oh um, well that's always a good friendship but i mean that is a funny that's like sort of a love hate for me with this series because i do like that it sort of emphasizes that because i mean one of the defining things about kurt is that he's a guy that has really good friends and really strong relationships with the x-men he's a very kind of emotionally intelligent character who you know that's sort of one of his places in the x-men universe so it does make sense to me that he'd be this guy that kind of almost one of his powers is that he has all these friends he can go to for help um, but at the same time, I think, for lack of a better word, I think he's depicted as like a little bit stupid too many times in this series in ways that I don't think fit the history of this character who would know about some of these things that he's going to people to ask about. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the um, aspects of particularly franchise comic book writing that so many different writers take stabs at these characters that there are inconsistencies that arise, you know, oh, rise yeah. up mm-hmm. and how well those get dealt with or even acknowledged can be dependent on like who the next writer is <laughs> mm-hmm. after that. Um, I like what you said about Nightcrawler having so many good friends. I think he's, he gets positioned in the X-Men franchise as um, a lot of characters would say Nightcrawler is one of their best friends, but you don't know who Nightcrawler would say is his best friend. <laughs> he's just one of those. <laughs> uh you know kind of people that logan's his best friend but logan and kitty are his best friends that would be my proposition yeah but i but i think like colossus would say that nightcrawler is one of his best friends oh yeah for sure you know but um because he connects so well with people and a lot of these people struggle to make connections with other people like Mm -hmm. you know they they, that's part of the the angst nature of some of these these characters um and and wolverine i think is a good that that pairing is a good one because um Wolverine, in his personality, uh, you know his his violent side, his his deep anger, uh, his uh, broodingness. Like it, it makes a great counterpoint to to Nightcrawler, and just that contrast can lead to some really fun interactions between the two characters. Yeah, I mean, there's a weird thing though that, and I mean, I don't think it's sort of worked through in this series, but like in terms of Kurt being a very like private character too, like, I mean, it's sort of coming across in what you're saying that he's a character that everybody thinks that he's their best friend and yet who's he's his best friend, right? Because he doesn't open up to people about sort of his own past and stuff. And that is actually a strong through line of this series that mm-hmm. he goes on this like mission to this circus in Florida and he doesn't actually tell anybody what happened there. Like he takes Logan with him, but he he doesn't even tell Logan that he was imprisoned in this freak show. Like this is something he's never told anybody. And he doesn't want to tell anybody to such a degree that he actually steals the plane from the X-Men to go on this mission to get out of telling anybody what it's about. (laughs) 
And I do wish that that had kind of been explored a little bit more, yeah. like sort of the character's reluctance to talk to people about things, because this would have been a really good opportunity to explore that, since that is kind of one of the themes of the series. And I think that makes for a really interesting character. And when we're getting like a solo adventure, like that's the kind of thing that would be great to delve into, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and where you can really take the time. Whereas in a group setting, there's often, you know, not enough page count to give every character those kinds of moments. Um, And, you know, as someone who's followed the character through all these different appearances, sort of his reticence to bring other people kind of into his past with even like his German circus has been kind of a recurring theme. Um, There was an X-Men Unlimited issue, which actually is a really relevant, like, to all of the, like, dangling plot threads that are dealt with in the second half of this series that actually, like, opens with he's going... Um, back to Germany to investigate something and like Kitty Pride and Colossus are like we'll go with you and he's like no it's private it's like only for like family and they're like we're not your family okay and they kind of storm off and then he ends up having this thing with Amanda and Margley and Limbo and everything which is actually involved with how the soul sword ends up inside of his body I mean part of the problem with the second half of the series is that it's kind of dependent yeah on all these continuity points that happened in an X-Men of an issue of X-Men Unlimited that presumably nobody read yeah x-men unlimited speaking of like the side stories that was a really Mm -hmm. side side series yes (laughs) that was not burning up the sales charts (laughs) yeah plus like late issues of excalibur in which so this is a thing that happened um so Margley, his foster mother, took over the body of Amanda Sefton for a time while Amanda Sefton and nightcrawler were both on the excalibur team and yeah, like they were in a relationship at that time. So like how that worked was a little bit strange, but she does, Margley does leave pretty soon after that. And Nightcrawler just assumes Amanda broke up with him without ever telling him about it. And then this doesn't get resolved until years later in this X-Men Unlimited issue and then not talked about again until this point. So yeah. when the soul sword gets put into his body, it might get put into his body by Margley while she is inside of Amanda's body while she's in a relationship with Kurt, which is twisted on so many levels. Yeah, the, the so many of the X Men stories get so convoluted with the relationships and and wildly inappropriate <laughs> with a lot of these, yes, these yes. relationships. <laughs> um, and when we're talking about like all these continuity issues, now you know Nightcrawler better than I do. Like, there's just too much material when it comes to the X Men. Like, I've read a lot of X Men comics, but there's so much. And every like rereading this, I remember thinking about his the Florida Circus point, and I was like. Has that ever been mentioned before? Is this the first time we get mentioned that it's Florida Circus, that he had time in the yes. Florida Circus? Okay. Yes. And that doesn't really f- fit terribly well with the Nightcrawler we meet in Giant Size X-Men <laughs> number one, when the character is first introduced. <laughs> it's one of these things. I mean, yeah, I feel like we're talking about all the bad things, but I like, I feel there are good things that I want to talk about too, because yeah, yeah, I think whoa. the first half of the series is like a little bit stronger. But since we're talking about the second half of the series, I mean, one of these central issues I would say that I have with this series is that it, it does introduce a ton of new trauma to Nightcrawler's backstory that I'm not sure really adds a lot to the character. Like, I mean, this detail about being imprisoned in the freak show in the Florida circus, it's horrifying. He gets drugged and like put in an animal cage in manacles for like weeks apparently um and again he's so traumatized by this that he's never even told anybody about it and it's suggested he might even be like repressing the memories of it because it's so traumatic so there's like a lot there and like within that same storyline he goes back to the german circus and everyone is dead so all of his previous friends and family have been killed and it doesn't really and this get in no like he like doesn't even core. get a panel of reacting to it yeah it's almost like princess leia watching alderaan blow up in star wars it's like okay we're moving on <laughs> yeah exactly so like i mean i think when you're adding so you're when you're doing retconning as i said before i think you just like i don't like when there's a retcon that it's like again what is that adding like he already had this backstory where he like kills his foster brother who was murdering children because he was possessed by demons and then gets tried to like gets almost killed by an angry mob before he's rescued by professor x isn't that kind of enough like what does adding this freak show thing like really do it just adds another layer of trauma to an already traumatic story and i don't know that it's sort of a really great retcon because of that i don't know what it's adding what it's sort of teaching us about the character that we didn't already know yeah uh, and revealing new secret trauma in some ways it almost becomes a crutch of the soap operatic side of superhero comics i I think you know where it's it's playing into like these constant twists and turns and uh very rarely does it feel like 
like what you're saying, like, like, okay, this is now going to inform my understanding of this character in a new way or make us rethink everything that came before, particularly with Nightcrawler, where, like, when we first see him, he's being chased by a mob uh, in mm-hmm. uh, Giant Size X-Men number one. Um, like, you, you can assume that there's been a lot of trauma there <laughs> already. And then just the, the timeline of him spending time in America before joining the X-Men, it's not the simplest workaround <laughs> to, to figure out how Well, I mean, works. yeah, I mean, he's already a character that has a very convoluted backstory and, like, to add more convolutedness to uh-huh. it is maybe not the best choice. Yeah. But, okay, we, we've done some nitpicking uh, about this particular interpretation. <laughs> what, what is it that we like? What, what, what can we celebrate about this interpretation of Nightcrawler? Well, I do like, as I mentioned earlier, the way it kind of tries to ground him in the real world to a certain extent, and also some of the character relationships and some of the like little kind of day-to-day things kind of around the X-Mansion and the X-Men's lives that got kind of thrown into this, I think are really charming. Like that scene in... Maybe it's like issue number four where like Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are having the little fencing match and like Hank and Logan and Emma are all watching them and like eating fast food and Emma's complaining about being bored. And that's just adorable. That does lead into one of those shower scenes as well with um, Nightcrawler and Aurora being very flirty with each other, which was a through line of X-Men comics during this era. There were a number of love triangles. As there always are in X-Men comics. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, some of those texture of the world things I thought were really effective. I liked sort of dealing with him just sort of being out doing things and like, you know, going on a date in the city with like a human female <laughs> and doing some kind of, you know, things that they presumably do in their lives. But, you know, in the main X-Men books, we don't see as much of that behind the scenes, right? When they're just sort of going from battle to battle. But I mean, sort of those domestic details of the X-Men world are always a big draw for me. And I did like some of those details in this series. Yeah, I, I think it's like one reason why a huge fan favorite thing for the X-Men is is um, I don't think they do it as often, but like the idea of like the X Men having an annual softball game and us seeing mm-hmm. you know those kinds of things play out, or like little scenes in the kitchen as like characters are just going in and grabbing a snack and they're they're running into another mm-hmm. character in the kitchen. Like those moments uh, sometimes stand out more than like the big fights when the artists really get to render all the suit you know the mutant powers on display. Um, a lot of times it is those little smaller grounded moments that are what end up like becoming favorite character interactions and make us, um, you know, enjoy spending time with these characters more than, you know, the action packed uh, adventure side of superhero comics. Yeah, for sure. And they like, there's so many like nice little things like that kind of in the, especially again, sort of the first half of this series, you know, <laughs> get the cute thing where Kurt and Christine go out on a date, non-date and they go to see Phantom of the Opera. And we learn that Kurt doesn't like musicals, which I do think is a pretty effective joke since he's someone you'd think would like musicals and yet he doesn't. And then, you know, we get, we find out that Logan really does like musicals. And then we get some of that love triangle tension stuff of, you know, Aurora and Logan kind of had a friends with benefits situation going on. It was heavily implied during this era, but also she's like jealous of Christine and like the relationship with Kurt. And there's some, so there's just some good, like kind of like background character work sort of throughout, especially that first half that I like really kind of it served as a good balance for the supernatural elements it served to ground those elements a little bit i did like a lot of the stuff with kurt and amanda sefton in this series as well too like again especially in the first half i would say i mean the scene where he goes to visit her in limbo and we get so we get a lot of sort of his interior in in kurt's interior monologue throughout this series i mean it's sort of picking up on that hard-boiled kind of detective tradition in that way And, you know, he's going to limbo to visit Amanda and being like, of course, my like girlfriend would live in limbo. And like, if you can even call this living and is being kind of sassy about it in his mind. And that was amazing. And also Amanda Sefton's like snake bodyguards are amazing, um, who are also very sassy. And yeah, just. I don't know that he can just be this character who's doing detective work in downtown New York and going to like musical dates with like Christine. And then he's also like, Oh, also that afternoon I just took a trip down to limbo and back. That's just a thing I can do. Yeah. (laughs) And if you uh, like, if you're a fan that's been invested in Nightcrawler, like, you know, that there's uh, depending on which version of Marvel continuity plays out in the future that, you know, a version of him can become Belasco, the Lord of, of limbo, Mm -hmm. according to some versions of Marvel future continuity. Um, you know, so there's like little loaded references that, you know, Nightcrawler appearing in limbo, you know, can can 
raise the radar, you know, for fans of, of mm-hmm. some, you know, that, that know all these variations that have been played out. Um, and that's the kind of thing that can be like, I, th- I think intimidating about comic books, but can also be really fun about comic books. It's, it's strange, like double-edged sword, <laughs> those kinds of like deep continuity cuts. Yeah, I often think about sort of, I mean, when I was first getting into Marvel comics, especially, and I mean, it was definitely the shared continuity that kind of hooked me on them. So if I'd been reading a book like this, and I'd be like, oh, there seems like there's this complicated backstory with like Kurt and Amanda, like, what's that all about? And to me, that would have intrigued me to kind of dig into it. And I would have got like obsessed with that for like a few weeks. But I can see how there's a total other response to it where you like encounter that. And you're just like, I'm annoyed that this happened in other comics that I then have to dig through. And Uh I just feel like you're either the one character character type or the other character type and so like shared continuity universe superhero comics are either going to appeal or they're not (laughs) i was interested by that yeah when i was a kid the first issue of x-men i picked up it was like the third part of a trilogy of stories of Mm -hmm. your island saga and i had no idea who any of these characters were i i didn't know what was going on but like i i wanted to figure out but i can also like there are some book series that i have had recommended like the wheel of time i've had recommended to me since i was a teenager and one reason i've never picked up the wheel of time is like i can't commit to you know a 12 or 13 volume book series or whatever it is it just feels like too Mm -hmm. intimidating to get into it but somehow x-men comic books became like you know catnip where i just like i wanted more i wanted to understand i wanted to make all these connections and get into it um and, and maybe it's like i i picked it up at the exact right moment uh you know and mm-hmm. uh, when I, you know, I, I was a kid, so I had all the free time in the world to start trying to figure out <laughs> who the X-Men were. I didn't have, you know, the internet to explain it to me. It was like picking up packs of trading cards and then reading the backs of every card like 15 times to learn every character's <laughs> code yeah. name and, and power set and all these, all, all these things. Um, but, but, well, uh, I, I've, oh, another well. interesting thing that I find, but this is sort of a tangential thing, but I mean, you know, I, you know, a lot of my work is on sort of female fandom and stuff. It's just like, a lot of the work that you end up doing sort of as a female fan is that you'll get into these things through fan fiction and actually learn the continuity through fan fiction and then go back and read the comics afterwards. And I always find that kind of like an interesting, not that that's like a gender exclusive difference, but that's definitely was part of my experience of superhero fandom from the beginning. Oh yeah. And when we're talking about like Marvel continuity history, like it's just so sprawling, it's really hard to be able to like go read all those original texts. So reading anything that kind of sums it up or, or, you know, gives you the, mm-hmm. the footnote version, which, uh, like you're saying, you know, fan, uh, fan fiction kind of provide that introduction. And you mentioned, uh, like, there's all these hints of Wolverine and, and Storm having this friends with benefits relationship. That's never said in the comics, but it's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, fan fiction would run with, I am sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, let... Uh, I, I think both of us feel like the the opening of the series is maybe a little stronger than the conclusion. Uh, the in terms of like giving the character that that focus and these supernatural things, I will say like the second one with the ghost, I, I'm kind of torn as to whether or not I like how abruptly it kind of ends. That like the mystery is finding out that there's been these uh, the, the the workers who were working on the subway that were that were killed, and the city just kind of ignored it and moved forward and. Uh, Kurt getting a politician to say that they're going to look into this is enough to say the ghost. Yeah. Yeah. You, you fulfilled my mission. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I don't know that I take a politician's word right now. <laughs> to, to I mean, that was like two issues to kind of deal with a one issue story. I mean, I would say pacing was an issue throughout this series. I think it was like the entire series was like more issues than there were story. Mm-hmm. And as much as that allowed them to have some of those kind of effective in between moments, um, yeah, sometimes you're just like reading and you're like, obviously the demons are possessing all of these people and it's kind of taking you too long to get to that point and it's just making me lose faith in you as a character but and like yeah the subway ghost thing i sort of liked that the way it was like you know because kurt's a guy that you know solves problems by getting people to work together too right like i mean as i said before he's this emotionally intelligent character and in terms of the type of leader he was in the excalibur title that was always kind of a focus of his leadership he was the guy that sort of got these volatile personalities to work together because he understands people really well so him sort of solving that problem kind of through negotiation and empathy i thought was sort of actually a good read on the character but 
ultimately kind of a boring story because again I think it was stretched out more than it had to be and the mystery wasn't really like compelling enough for like two issues of comics yeah I think it was one where they were going for the atmosphere and I think they did a good job of establishing kind of the spooky atmosphere in the first issue um but then the resolution you know we're okay well we've established all the atmosphere and now we're gonna make it go away like it it didn't quite land and similarly like all the demon build up and then at the end it's like okay well there's gonna be a war coming and that's the end of the series uh and you know when a series ends at 12 you always assume like well maybe they had plans for more and so maybe they were trying to build lay seeds for a big demon battle that as far as i know kurt hasn't been central to any big demon battle like what was being hinted at in this one there's definitely been demon stuff going on with the x-men <laughs> i'm not trying to say that but like exactly what well yeah like this. i mean there was a there was a big kind of demon war that happened like in x-factor around the same time but like yeah he was not involved with that like at all yeah and, and so it feels like like both of the the second and the third stories ended a, a bit abruptly um the first one i think was most successful in pacing and in you know laying out everything and and reaching that conclusion and um kind of introducing some of the new um, you know who are going to be the the core side cast for for Nightcrawler because that's the other thing in, in like establishing a new solo series is it's not just okay what is this character's mission it's like okay well now who are going to be the supporting cast it's going to be necessarily different than what you're getting over in the main comic or you just go be reading the main comic um, mm-hmm. and, and I do think again that that idea of Nightcrawler as paranormal investigator would serve really well as um, the opportunity to still like touch base because he's still hanging out with the X-Men and why he's still on the main X-Men missions. But then also why does he have these side adventures with a, a different cast of characters, a different love interest, you know, over here, um, you know, different uh, people whom he can turn to for help in uh, these, these paranormal issues they doesn't understand. So you're keeping, you know, Amanda Sefton around as a character. Um, I think the, the premise was all really good and most successfully executed in that first story arc. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, I did like to sort of bringing up, and this isn't something that's really been explored much, but that Kurt does have this connection to magic. And it's something that's been sort of like mentioned or alluded to at various times. Um, there's another story, Ex Infernus, which involves the rescuing, which... Um, the soul sword stuff gets brought up again. Um, Pixie tries to get the soul sword because Ileana wants it back because she's imprisoned in limbo. So this does actually, that part of the story actually does play out later and Kurt eventually gets the soul sword out of his body for good. Um, but, and it's hinted at in that series as well, that he's attuned to magic in some way. And that's an intriguing aspect of the character since there's a, actually a lot of unresolved questions about kind of the nature of his existence. Like it got revealed that his father is this character, Azazel, who maybe is a demon or maybe is a mutant and it's not quite clear. Storyline, I'm not wild about that one. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's a very hated retcon um, among most fans of X-Men comics, I would say. It's one of the least um, popular retcons, but... um. But yeah, like, so there's a lot of questions about, and there were even times in Excalibur where they try to work out what the specific nature kind of his powers are and which of his features are like mutant powers and which aren't. Like when they're given like mutant suppressors and that kind of things, the only power he loses is his teleportation. Like that's his mutant power and the other features of him are not his mutant powers. And there's a lot of questions about how that works. Like, is there a magical component to this character or not? And, you know, I don't like that retcon. The reason that retcon of making the character quasi-magical is bad is because the central metaphor of the character was he's this character who looks like a demon who's not a demon and making him actually a demon kind of (laughs) ruins that metaphor on a really fundamental level. So it's not great. Um, But at the same time, since that is present, I do like the idea of sort of picking up on some of this you know he's attuned to magic or kind of thing um especially because he's raised within the context of magic i mean that's his foster family right that's been his girlfriend for so many years so like that's uh, i just i think one of the reasons i've spent so much time thinking about this series over the years and i have written multiple fan fiction stories over the years sort of set in the world of this series kind of trying to figure out some of its dangling plot threads and stuff is that it does raise so many interesting possibilities but 
for how slow paced it is, we don't have a lot of kind of it figuring out those things on a character level, strangely. I mean, because again, my main complaint with the back half of the series, I mean, in addition to just the staggering levels of trauma, is that we actually don't see Kurt responding to that trauma. So it's like it's slow paced, but kind of not capitalizing on that slow pacedness to get into the things that you would think being slow paced would allow you to get into. It's just, uh, it's like so full of potential and then so frustrating in so many ways. And I think one thing that's interesting is while we can have that frustration, and I share a lot of exactly what you're describing, like I still love the character of Nightcrawler. Uh, and maybe it's because of the nature of, you know, the Marvel Comics universe where we always assume like, well, there's, there's still gonna be another story. And we just hope the next one is, is the great Nightcrawler story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot that I do like uh, in, in how this series is established in some of the character work, but it, like the success of the narrative itself maybe falls a little flat for me. Like the, the 12th issue is a very odd wrap up to me of <laughs> what felt like a big, yeah. big setup. And then it's just a demon saying, well, fine, don't join me. <laughs> I, well, the one thing I did like about the Mephisto conversation at the end is like, <laughs> I mean, he's basically like, I know I'm not ever going to be able to convince you to join us because again, you're like the goodest guy around. And, you know, like, <laughs> It's just like, there's no point in trying to turn you to our demonic side, because the one thing everybody knows about you is that you're like the best guy and you're never going to turn to the side of evil. And that is centrally one of the things I love about Nightcrawler, because I'm all about characters that are good characters and not about antiheroes at all. And I love that he's so unambiguously good. And it's one of the things I definitely love about him. And even in the first issue, um, you have Storm saying one of the reasons she wants him to go and deal with this horrible child murderers case is that he's one of the few X-Men who is nice and tactful. (laughs) Like she can't think of anybody else who fills those qualities. And I'm like, yes, he is the one that's just like nice and you can send him to do something and know he's not going to screw up or piss people off and that he's just going to be a nice person. Yeah. And I'm like, I did like that, you know, because that's one of his superpowers, right? That he's just sort of really nice and good at dealing with people. And like, I liked his interactions with Emma Frost too. They're always kind of a fun, I mean, Emma's always fun, but one of the things that I think is cute about her interactions with Kurt, both here and in a number of other stories, is that she's one of the few kind of X-Men that Emma doesn't really seem to hate. (laughs) Like she sort of likes Kurt and that's like kind of adorable. They have kind of an interesting relationship. Even it's sort of like even Emma likes Kurt. That's how likable he is. Yeah, and uh it transfers really well um into both the group setting and now giving him a new cast of characters around him. I think it, it just works um to to have him mm-hmm. in that role. And um, you know, the the comic book publishing industry is is full of twists and turns as to what what's gonna work, what series is gonna land, but I would not mind another swing at, at Nightcrawler uh carrying carrying his own title. He's one of the X-Men characters that I think stand stands out. Like you said, he's he's been a fan favorite from some of his very first appearances. Um, there's something about him that definitely resonates within the fandom. And uh, I mean, you mentioned they killed him off, but he got better both because that's the nature <laughs> of uh, comic book death is that it's very rarely going to be permanent, but also he's so beloved. You knew <laughs> that, that fans were going to demand that he come back. <laughs> oh, that was a tough time though. That's so, yeah, I wrote, I mentioned before that I wrote an essay for Vault of Culture about my undying love affair with undying superheroes that was all about my reaction to Nightcrawler's death and how emotionally difficult that was for me and how I stopped reading X-Men comics for like five years because of it. So, like, as much as I knew as a superhero scholar and fan that he would be back, it's like, oh, man, that was bad. It was like the death of, like, your identification character and, like, the death of a fan favorite character, too. Oof, it was It was hard. And we had a bunch of sort of alternate versions of him going around for a while at that time and these little tiny like monster versions of him called the BAMPs investing the gene infesting the gene gray school and it was it was a difficult time uh well i I think we're probably about time to wrap up (laughs) our discussion of nightcrawler do you have any final thoughts about this character that you want to share with our listeners Oh, well, I will make a plug for in terms of Nightcrawler's solo series that I do think is really good. Um, He had a mini as part of the Age of X-Men event, which was the event um, directly preceding um, House of X, Powers of X, which started the new Dawn of X reboot that we're still in the midst of right now. Um, So it's called Age of X-Men, Amazing Nightcrawler. um, And it's a really 
that's probably actually my favorite Nightcrawler mini that there has been, although this series is probably a close second, um, despite all the complaining about it I've done. So I wanted to make a plug for that one if somebody's looking for another good Nightcrawler solo that flew a little bit under the radar. I, you know what? I think it's important that we have conversations where we can say, yeah, I don't like this about this thing, but I still love this thing. Uh, you know, yeah. where, where we get, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing uh, relationship with media. There, there can be things that we love. I, I, compl- I complain because I love, yeah. which is like, I feel like could be a slogan for most X-Men fans. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, have, like I said, X-Men is, is one of my very favorite superhero franchises. And Nightcrawl is one of my favorite characters in the X-Men franchise. There's just something that, is delightful about him when he's being written well and and you get this kind of love of life that seems to be infectious from him and i I think maybe that's why he's so important to the x-men because the x-men could be a very dour group (laughs) if you get the wrong Mm -hmm. character combinations Mm -hmm. in there and you need this burst of just kind of enthusiasm that's going to come from nightcrawler being on the page uh you know this brimstone burst of enthusiasm (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh so uh if you are interested in the x-men i would just look for those issues that have a blue demon looking character and just know it's actually a very fun loving <laughs> character that's that you're gonna have, find as, as you start to read those and if you want a totally bonkers one check out that 85 cockram miniseries i mean nightcrawler was really like dave cockram's like baby and that series had like a lot of love put into it and is totally off the wall bonkers and yeah it's a fabulous series to check out if you haven't checked it out before all right. Well, Anna, thank you for joining us. And this is your first time on the Protagonist Podcast. And we always ask our first time guests the dinner guest question. If you could host a dinner party with any set of fictional characters, who would you want to invite and why? I thought about this a lot. And one of the things that troubled me about it is that I like different characters and universes in different ways. And I don't know always if I want to hear them and see them interact because I just, I worry there'd be conflict and it stressed me out the whole question. So I came back to a very boring answer, which is that I would recruit the original five members of Excalibur, um, Rachel Gray, Kitty Pride, Nightcrawler, Captain Britain, and Megan to be my dinner party guests and just hang out with them at their kooky lighthouse. Oh, I think we learned about one of your favorite series right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, they were in a lighthouse. I forget. Oh, such a good, I mean, a lighthouse as your superhero base. That's pretty fantastic <laughs> right there. Um, what about those five characters? Just real quick. Is it that has made them resonate with you? Is it just the way they are as a group or is there, do you love each of them individually too? I do love some of those characters individually. I mean, Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are two of my favorites. Um, but it was sort of that space of, so we talked a little bit at the top about it being kind of a cult series, but you know, a space within the X-Men universe that's set a little bit of aside from the X-Men universe. And yeah, they're kind of like these tra- traumatized characters who are making a new life for themselves, you know, in for three out of the five characters anyway, in like a new place and, you know, having them the expansion is already kind of you know this like little enclave um but having you know these five characters sort of like marooned on this lighthouse in a lonely coast um dealing with kind of their injuries and traumas and finding a way to get through that and eventually having dimension hopping adventures um i like different of those characters in different ways but i think it was sort of just the dynamic of putting those characters in that place and time that makes that idea appealing to me All right. Well, thank you again, uh, Anna, for joining us. That's going to wrap up this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash protagonist podcast anna is there anything you would like to plug um sure i have a book coming out in december called um it's an anthology which i edited um which does feature some um interesting x-men content called super sex sexuality fantasy and the superhero um and again that will be out december 15th i believe all right well thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story
involving the deaths of children inside a boat. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll give you a fresh take there, Andrew, for your edit. 